I have never done an interview for a podcast. I was going to say, there's no way you've never done an interview before. Of course, yes. I'm just kidding. But the concept, I was like, oh gosh, podcast. But it's a whole other sphere. And we don't want to cry, but we will. So we'll do whatever we do. It's okay. I was, I teared up a little bit during um, Dr. Chelsea Creech's interview. So Mm. tears are fine this is a feminine podcast emotions are fine oh yeah that's true you're right and at this point it's who i am what can we do (laughs) (laughs) this is just part of the process this is just how it works you okay oh oh i'm sorry evie hold on a sec oh yeah good girl i love it if that's part of the podcast (laughs) (laughs) that i have i have doggy intruders i mean my my best hope is that they won't start barking in the middle of it oh but that'll be fine then you just go go with the flow this is part of the process Mm -hmm. i did leave the back door open in case i wanted to go outside so i shouldn't have to get up to 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 deal with them yeah they're so cute, but they're, you know, if you put them together, they're like a hundred pounds. So they're a lot of, oh my gosh, it's a lot of dog. <laughs> Welcome to the Feminine Genius Podcast. Thank you so much. As I said, I'm a podcast virgin. Uh, so basically we will just go <laughs> and being interviewed here, but, but yes, it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Um, and so you haven't heard our little intro thingy before, but basically okay. the the tagline of this show is like a podcast about faith, science, and how they meet in real life. And we're both two Catholic women in science having that conversation, which I think is Absolutely. pretty cool. Yeah. Do you want to tell people how we met, actually? Which is also um, science and faith, sort of. Um, it is science and faith, sort yeah. of. I didn't end up doing the thing that I had originally proposed, but I think it, no, but it you worked did out. something. Yeah. I did do something. So you and I met when I applied on a whim for the Given Institute mentorship program back in it was actually I applied for it like four days after the deadline had technically ended. Yeah. In February 2020, because I guess the world was starting to fall apart then. And I was like, well, why not? And so I like emailed the Given Institute to ask if I could apply late. Um, and they said yes. And so you were picked as my mentor for that for that mentorship year. year. Yeah. And so yeah, we know the each other decently well at this point. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, and we haven't. And the interesting thing is supposedly our mentoring year finished. When did it finish? June last year? July? I think so. Something like that. So, I mean, we've kept in touch, but this might be our um reunion zoom meeting <laughs> to check in <laughs> in a lot of ways yeah yeah, yeah it really crazy. is yeah so would you mind um introducing yourself briefly for the people at home that okay. don't know you like I do oh sure perfect so I'm I'm Alvida. so I'm a rheumatologist um which is a doctor that specializes in like autoimmune diseases um people mostly know us as doing things like arthritis lupus um so I work at Johns Hopkins and in that capacity, I actually am, you know, like the way I practice my rheumatology is like I divide up my time between actually seeing patients. I am also the program director for our fellowship training program. Um, so I'm an educator 
that capacity. And also, um, I do research, clinical research. So I'm also an investigator. So kind of like the hybrid of all of those things. But basically, I practice academic medicine. I'm, a, I'm always amazed whenever we talk about all of the hats that you wear. Mm-hmm. How do you, I mean, we've talked a little bit about just how hard it is to juggle all those hats, but how do you balance being a physician? And I know you've talked before about running like clinical research team, and now you're also leading the fellowship program. What's that like? What's that like? So I think one is a structure in academic medicine, right? You really are expected to do all of this because, well, in some ways, the goal is to not just treat the patient in front of you, but understand how to best treat them. And that's who research. And then when you know how you disseminate that information, and in some ways, that's why we're training the next generation of people. So from a practical perspective, you know, it's funny because we think of ourselves as our time is, you know, percentages of time. So let's say 100% is supposedly a work week. Obviously, we're generally always working more than the 40-hour work week. But um, so you think of it as 100%. And so your time is divided up into that. So let's say mostly I do four half-day clinics a week. So that's 40% of my time. We consider 10%. And then the rest, you actually have grants to protect your time. Because otherwise, you would do 100% clinics, right? You just see patients. Mm-hmm. But you basically have to buy back time where... So then that's where you write grants to actually be able to do the research you propose. And then part of that would be salary support. So if let's say you get 20% to do a certain grant and then another 10% for another um, study. And then now, um, because I had to also assume the position of program director, then they also support my salary for the, from that standpoint. So so basically, I'm 100% but covered in 40% here, 30% there. But in the end, it doesn't matter what, because then it's just fluid in essence. But I do enjoy it. I would say, I mean, when people say, why do you do academics? I mean, exactly for that. I mean, I'm never bored. I'm able to do all of these things. I do know that um, like each day is different. Monday might be my heavy clinical day. Tuesday, I precept the fellows clinic. But in the morning, it's pretty much administrative stuff all meetings. Wednesday, I'll have meetings, but also supposed to be my time to kind of do my science and research. Thursday, I have clinic again in the morning. Friday is all, you know, um, teaching and didactics. But every day is different. So I I don't ever struggle with getting bored. In fact, like you, you need time to do everything you want to do. But yeah. Yeah, I, I, I totally hear you. I really uh, like the same thing about doing research. Just the fact that each day I come in, I'm going to do something a little bit differently. And I, you always have to think too about, again, how to arrange your schedule. My research is mm-hmm. a little bit different because I work with cells and stuff. And so mm-hmm. it's a bit different. Evie, We're having some um, dog trouble gonna... over there. <laughs> yes, you guys may hear a couple of interjections occasionally. So apologies for that. But yeah, and so we, I, my research is slightly different, but it's things like you have to think about, okay, how mm-hmm. do I want to arrange my time? Because experiments take multiple days as well. Yep. yep. And so there's mm-hmm. always the kind of process of optimization. Did you have, was it a main goal of yours when you were looking for a place to practice after you finished your studies to be able to do research at the same time? Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, in fact, it's funny. Um, I did my 
residency in internal medicine in New York. And I was, you know, hell-bent of being the best rheumatologist I could be, right? But that was um, the way I thought this. I'm, my heart is always for patients. And um, I always thought, no, I just wanted to see patients. So I was going to be a clinician. But then I ended up somehow matching in Johns Hopkins for my fellowship, which was a complete act of God. And I, I had no um, idea that that would be the occurrence. And um, Johns Hopkins obviously tends to be for people who want to do research, you know, academic and so on. So I remembered coming on my first, I mean, my first year being very clear with them. Uh, I'm just a clinician. I'm only going to do two years. I'm clinical. I'm not going to do any research. But as I continue to see patients, you know, and then they're just fascinating. You realize our field is such that there's still a lot of unknowns. You end up becoming very interested in why and is there a better way to get at this question? And there's an ordered way to figure out what is the best path or is there new treatment, things like that. So then I started getting very interested in it. But in the end, it's funny that I ate all my words. And here I was asked, like, can I stay on? Um, and yeah, so it became a thing where I naturally transitioned into faculty and then morphing over time to do all, all of these things. Yeah, I love that God knew you better than you did. And oh, he yeah. was like, yeah, that's, you know that's, what? I think you're going to like this. Yeah, that's a constant theme in my life. And also, you know how, yeah, you, you just never know. You really have to be open to the Lord. And if it's his will, he leads you there. Absolutely. Yeah, sorry. Kona, Kona is upset because I gave <laughs> Evie. So there are two dogs, Evie and Kona. I gave Evie a new rawhide because Kona took Evie's rawhide and Evie was mad about it. And now oh I think God. Kona's mad that I gave Evie a new rawhide. I know. And I can see something happening has... in the background. <laughs> I'm going to let them sort it out because... Yep. I am their babysitter, but they'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't do any science really at all until you got to Johns Hopkins. Oh, no, I don't mean. Um, yeah, it's funny, right? People might say, um, you know how we think science. I did science as an undergrad, right? I was, I was actually biology. And so I actually thought I would teach. I loved biology. I loved chemistry. I loved all of that. The only thing I didn't love as much was physics. And then, you know, went into medicine. And so actually medicine even though it's literally applied science, which is the best kind for me. I mean, even though I still do get interested in like just a very focused area like chemistry or like now with my research, for example, and one is metabolomics, right? So then it's heavy chemistry. And can we understand um, metabolism again? Let me go through again the Krebs cycle and TCA cycle. You know, it's stuff that you haven't remembered since college but at the same time for me you use a lot of that information every day for medicine you don't realize that like medications how the medication works for you to understand that immunology you have to understand physiology so for me medicine is applied science um and I do like practical I like it always being applied I couldn't do I don't think I would have fared I like science because it's just stimulating the brain but it wouldn't have stimulated me long enough to have stayed there ah. if there was no application to a human being. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And is yeah. that what eventually drove you from, because you said as an undergrad that you contemplated like teaching biology? Yeah. Is that what kind of moved you into medicine then was the, I like the, I like biology, but I want to see it impact people every day. Well, no, 
unfortunately, I, the fact that I was already doing biology was because it was I had plans and designs already to do medicine. <laughs> so then that plan still held. But yeah, no, because I mean, the call to medicine was like pretty early on that I, and I didn't really be, I, I don't think I was one of those kids that ever had any other thought but to do medicine. And in some ways, I blame like my grandfather for that. It was a lot of subliminal, like literally my mom's side of the family has, you know, several doctors. Like, so my grandfather, his, his idea was all his kids would be doctors. My mom didn't end up doing it. She went into psychology. So I remember as a child, he would carry me and, you know, get me to nap and all, but he would like keep whispering, you're going to become a doctor. You know, you want to. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's subliminal, you know. So in some ways, it was like simple. So when they ask you, do you agree I'll be a doctor? But then I did consider the arts for a bit um, because my family is also very artistic. So my sister and my brother are architects. And then me, that could have been a natural thing because I was also a artistic but then I actually had a dream sometime in high school when we had to like decide career location and all I remember with that dream was that it was war time and then like it was war and there were all these things and apparently in the dream I was a doctor and helping all these wounded people and so on and I just remembered like waking up from that crying like because I was so happy to be a doctor see I still I still feel that way (laughs) But also, it was one of those things, but it was that, but also the fact that, ah, just from a practical standpoint, just thinking of people with, like, in wartime and all, suddenly being a lawyer, being an architect didn't really make sense, you know, but for me, like, medicine was a very, again, I go back to practical, which tells you I'm a practical person, I will always have the ability to help, and that became very clear to me, like, medicine, no matter what happens in the world, whatever, I will always have the ability to be of service. I love that. And just as an aside, like your spiritual life is so, is so beautiful to me, especially I think because this idea that like you had a, a dream that was very impactful and has kind of led you in certain directions. I feel like that's not the only time that's happened to you. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I feel like God. And he speaks from what in I, every you know, way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. He's he always, really likes to use your artistic mind and creativity to communicate with you, which I think yeah. is such a, this just an aside, but I always, I thought that was something that's really beautiful about the way that God speaks to you. Yeah, thank you. We can thank him for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. So tell me a little bit more about what is the actual like research side of what you do because I don't think we've talked a whole lot about Mm. more the details about what it is that you actually study at Johns Hopkins gotcha I mean so actually we do I mean I do several things I mean so basically my area of expertise is um we call this myositis so it's a muscle disease it's an inflammatory muscle disease and then um aside from that that's my disease of interest but then the other thing is my other expertise is what we call as musculoskeletal ultrasound. So you know the way that ultrasound used for, you know, OBGYN issues, diagnostic. Over the last few years, it's really had a resurgence in medicine to be used for multiple things. So in fact, we're able to look at joints and we're able to look at muscles in the same way that we would do an MRI. So because I was naturally also doing that, and I'm the person that does that in Hopkins, 
um, then that's also a big part of my research. It's like extending the indications and what we use it for in areas that it's not standard of care. So let's say if it's known, it can be used for rheumatoid arthritis. When I first started doing my research, because then everyone wanted me to look at their disease too and things. And I was like, oh, every, my mind was glitching. Everything was interesting. Okay, I'll do it for lupus. I'll do it for this. But then because I was doing that myositis, right? I ended up, um, I was talking to one of uh, like a uh, very senior person in Hopkins, sat beside him in a party and randomly also he said, well, let's talk after. When I had told him all my plans, he just goes to me, why aren't you looking at muscle? With ultrasound because that's the disease I'm interested in. I go, there's no, there's no data on it. And then I thought myself, that's actually good <laughs> because there's, there's like no, no data. There's no data is kind of the point. <laughs> exactly. And so I was like, light bulb moment. So and that's another way, like the Lord speaks through various people, like random encounter, right? So ultimately, that's a big. Um, that's so that's one. Like if you look at my NIH biosketch, the first part is probably muscle ultrasound and you know, pioneering a lot of the stuff of how we is it even useful? What can we see? What are the changes you see in muscle and how do you measure it? So some of the work I've done has also involved like um machine learning when it was cool, I mean, it still is, but you know how where it was novel initially, like maybe in 2017, I would do that work with applied the applied physics lab. So I don't have to. So that's the other thing about our research, right? I realized you can't do everything. And the no. beauty of that is you actually have to know what your strength is. Me, I come up with the clinical questions. I know this stuff. And then you collaborate with people that know that area, engineers. So then they're the ones who did, who, you know, we did like deep learning. We did all of these things. And then that was like the first application for muscle. And then now you see so many people are doing that, but that's one. And then the other big thing, maybe just second part I'm focusing on now is like that one disease, it's called inclusion body myositis, which is not curable. And so, and you might know this from Fathers to watch it, but the Fathers to movie, it's literally, and so I was like, um, we had done a clinical trial for looking at uh, mitochondrial changes in this disease and trying to see if we can change that and upregulate. Oh yes, you're a scientist, so I can actually use words. We could you can use big words. <laughs> we could upregulate the mitochondrial pathways with pyoglitazone. But that's also led to a lot of other work, like now looking at metabolomics and metabolism in this disease. And again, I don't have to do the metabolomics, but I collaborate with the, the metabolomics. The Mesbeck people that oh, know yes, how to exactly. do metabolomics. Exactly. <laughs> And then they'll just spew out all the stuff and you're like, how does this make sense for this disease? <laughs> so it really is always collaborative, which I like. I love the fact that science, you cannot make discovery anymore these days by as a single person. It's team science always, which I think God made for a purpose. Very yeah. few things are really actually something that you do on your own. Yeah. Like pretty much any great thing is going to require teamwork mm -hmm. yeah like even you right so if your pi um sure he gets the credit for it but boom 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 so many postdocs underneath that have led to that discovery um mm -hmm. and so i think everyone should almost be included in the nobel prize <laughs> so. oh don't get me <laughs> i know that's I know. what okay, i was well. that's what i was thinking about actually when you were saying that i was like oh, yes but it's the pi that gets the 
I don't even remember. Is it a million dollars cash money and the little plaque and they get to do yeah. the whole big ceremony? And it's like, but yep, the postdoc yep. did all the work. <laughs> I know. And the multiple, <laughs> multiples of postdocs. Yeah, no. Yeah, they really have to do something different. But anyway, it's true. Fine. Later. It's what it is. Yeah, exactly. No, nope, no, nope, Nobel prizes are just their own thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of great scientists in the world don't get Nobel prizes. It's exactly. Okay. Yeah. You don't need to um get that recognition to say that you're doing good work. And how do you find just within yourself, how does this interplay of being a practicing clinician and a scientist? Like, what does that interplay look like for you? Like, how do you balance being, you know, objective and like following protocols and, you know, doing all of that from a very scientific perspective? Because mm-hmm. science is very focused on like, this is the problem and we're trying to devise a logical way of mm-hmm. probing the problem, right? To being a clinician where you have to suddenly switch gears to remembering the full dignity of the, the person in front yeah. of you. Exactly. Like it can, it's a very kind of dichotomous way of kind of seeing things. Yeah. What does that kind of look like for you? No, that's that's interesting. You see, I see no dichotomy. Like it's interesting. Like I don't see that conflict because then one is, I mean, the the science it's almost like when you know you're starting when you're starting to learn something you have to know the rules right you have to basically go over it you have to remember and then it becomes so ingrained that's the only time you start being able to innovate when you've known it so well already right but so in some ways the clinical aspect you know when you're first a doctor and you're you don't really understand then you're literally listing off in your head the checklist like um oh he has fever um, there's this there, and then you're making criteria in your head, which we have so much of in medicine. So if you wanted to, you can go to calculators and say, um, okay, this is Stills disease because Yamaguchi criteria says X, Y, Z, and he checks off this, his liver enzyme is this, you know, all of that. But in the end, you can check off all those boxes and it's not the right disease, right? So ultimately, um, over time, what does happen is experience comes into play and your understanding of patients that, and somehow, when you're, I'm faced with that patient, yes, in my head, I'm just really understanding. I think the the patient focus one is really the history. You're trying to understand what's going on, and then drawing out that information. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, like you're so I'm not because they teach us. You're, oh, it's supposed to be open ended. Like, what brought you here? But then you know they can go very far with those questions. <laughs> so, I mean, I love it. Yes, we're supposed to teach med students to do that. But ultimately, you can round it out. But as the story is coming out, you're like, okay, your head is flipping through possibilities. Then you're almost like making a checklist to make the story. But like, can you clarify X, this, blah, blah, blah. And then, so in some ways, it's almost, as I say, it's applied. I don't even think about it so much, but it's almost like it happens. And two, that's also where you rely on the Lord where in faith, it's about, yeah, sure, understanding the science, but I do believe that, you know, he is guiding you and he's, you know, giving you insight and light. And in some way, sometimes, you know, patients are saying something you're like, I, I know what you have and I, I don't know why, <laughs> but, you know, and it, so it does happen where, but yeah, I like how in the end, it's all buried in there, that whole scientific rigorous method. And we would use that anyway with deciding what treatment to use or something like that it's because you know you look at uh 
now has this comorbidities. I can't use this. This medication hits up this way and he's on this. You know, so there's still a very ordered framework at which to consider things, but it's always patient centered. Like I don't like the books will tell you one thing, but the patient is in front of you. Like there is the saying from Osler, William Osler, who's like a famous physician, one of the first in Hopkins. A good, I'm gonna mess this up. They're going to kill me for it. But a good patient treats a disease. And then I think so. That, but an excellent physician treats the patient who has the disease. Mm -hmm. Right? Because then, yeah, I, I could tell you what cancer and the protocol say this based on evidence like this. But in the end, the patient has values. And you have to consider all of that. And as you were talking, I kept thinking about the distinction between knowledge and wisdom. Oh yes. Like I was I was kind of I was kind of imagining it like in the beginning when you're a doctor, you're really trying to use your knowledge. Knowledge. But yes. it's but it's in a very kind of external way. Mm -hmm. Um, because you're kind of seeing everything as like a problem on a chalkboard. And yeah, then exactly. over time it almost seems like it becomes like the knowledge becomes more like lived in. Mm -hmm. And I know this word gets overused, but like more integrated or embodied. Yeah, so sure. rather than seeing knowledge as just like a thing that you possess outside of yourself, it becomes mm -hmm. like just another facet of the way that you make your worldview, I guess, which is what mm -hmm. allows you, I think, to integrate, like allowing the Lord into that space, because the knowledge is not just something that you're looking at to solve the problem, but it becomes, you know, a little bit, I don't know if that makes any sense, a little bit no, more does, part of yourself. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And it's true. No, but I think, in fact, especially when it's like you're struggling in the knowledge part, that's where you actually have to invite the Lord in. And he turns a lot of that into sort of the wisdom that makes it easy. Because it's true. Over time, we don't think about a lot of these things. I was just thinking about this recently where, you know, how as a student or earlier in your training, everything seemed hard to do. Like if I think of what like attendings were doing, I'm like, man, they're so busy. How do they juggle all of this? Like as you're saying, right? But then with time, because you understand how things are, it's hard, less difficult to do. Like if you made me see a consult in the hospital, they say, oh, this person's crashing has X, Y, Z. Before I'd be like, oh my gosh, <laughs> let me like read up on this first and try and understand. But now it's like, okay, show me the data. Let me understand. Okay. There's this, like it's almost faster to integrate. And therefore I spend less time doing it. Then I now have capacity, even research when you start writing a paper, the first paper you ever write, you might spend two days on the intro, right? But then now you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I know. Okay, methods go this way and you just write it this way and there's a format and don't overthink it. Just keep writing it, you know, first time you write the grant. I mean, so all of that happens. It, it becomes easier to do. So therefore you're able to increase in responsibility, increase in the roles you take on. And that's appropriate. You can't do that earlier on when you don't even have your skills too much. Yeah. Yeah. Not to bring the biblical reference in too early, but I that makes me think of to those who have been faithful with little, the Lord will make faithful over much, right? So there's an, mm -hmm. an expanding of capacity as you just continue to do your little thing well. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. You actually grow in the ability to to handle more. It's like talents. Yep. The Man. more you use it, I swear, um, he keeps giving you more. 
And people are like, how do you do it all? Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, it seems <laughs> easy, but also if you're grounded and centered in the Lord, he's able to order everything that you are able to do. Yeah, I see a lot of it where you see a lot of people in academics, like doing a lot, but also it's just crazy. You know, you can tell where it's when it's not in an ordered way. And I can really tell, like, you know, when it's not centered on the right thing. But then there's also, and the people who are the most effective, I find, um, because I observe people a lot, like, you know, that's also what you do where you're like, it's effective, who do you emulate, all of that. And then you'll see the people who have the most impact and they're very effective. If you interview them at some point, you will realize they're people of deep faith. And it doesn't have, and I don't mean Catholic alone, like Jewish, you know, or deeply spiritual Muslim, you know, but someone that's grounded in like a higher order, like that there's a concept behind why they do the work they do. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, just some thoughts I've been having. So, <laughs> No, that's fair. Yeah. My fiance and I bring up the parable of the talents all the time. Yeah. As we're, we're both just exploring different ways to use our gifts in different, mm-hmm. different areas of our lives and not wanting to bury them but also wanting to bury them because using them is scary and it's, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a whole thing. Yeah. You always have to bring things to the Lord because uh, not everything that's good is a good idea. And in fact, like, yeah, I was just reading, uh, well, because for Lent, I'm reading Imitation of Christ um, again, like it's my most underlined book. But um, one of the things, especially now, like the Lord gives you desires. He gives us big dreams, right? He gives us big desires to do good work, to do all of that. Not about yourself, but really to like, you recognize that you have the capability of doing a lot. So anyway, and then there was, I think this line, like, on the line, like give to the Lord all your desires and he will give you rest. Because sometimes I feel like my, my brain is just overthinking too many Things like because he's asking you to do so many things. But in all truth, every desire and every good idea needs to be tested because not all of it is good, right? So even as much as I think, ah, he's calling me to do X project, you can almost, the moment I feel that idea, then I give it back to him. I'm like, if you want, then it will come to fruition. So there's no, there's never a sense of panic or anxiety that it has to be mine. Like I have to compete with somebody else because this opportunity is coming, you know? But if that opportunity is for me, he himself will do it and it will continue moving. So it's been helpful because otherwise I can't without there's too many opportunities. And I'm definitely one of those people where I can apply myself in multiple directions, mm-hmm. which is a bane and a boon. So, yeah. Well, I feel like that's just good discernment advice in general. Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> testing, testing, testing everything. You're right. Yeah. That is another I definitely, nation principle. Right. I've definitely fallen into the having lots of ideas and not all of them are the right idea. Yeah. <laughs> but you learn though, even by practicing, if he let you practice it. Because um, sometimes I find also with discernment, it's like, do you want me or do you not want me to do this? And then people get so um, paralyzed. Uh, paralyzed, embroiled in the thing. But the Lord's also asking, just move in some way like have some trust and faith in you know um so yeah you can't have too much analysis paralysis so it's balance all the time yeah well and I find so much too and that my fiance and I are very different this way because I'm very much like all right I've got an idea to do this maybe God wants me to do it maybe he doesn't I'm just gonna like 
work on it for mm. a few hours, a few days, and then see how it feels. Yeah. But uh, Randy, I love him. He's a lot more like, I need to know exactly how I'm going to do this before I can start. Yeah. And I'm much more likely yeah. to be like, no, I'm just going to open a word document and I'm just going to word vomit all over the page and, you know, just put thoughts out and see. I've probably got 10 different documents of 10 different half-baked schemes that I started thinking about and then gave up on because I was like, I don't, this doesn't feel right. Which is interesting. It's not the very sciencey way. Whereas, <laughs> like, you know, it's funny with science, you need to lay out the experiment. You need to consider all of this, you know, in some ways. Um, but it's almost good that I think for me, that's the way the Lord, you can't be. I'm glad my brain isn't always just thinking in that that fashion. You have to stretch mm -hmm. and like push yourself to a more creative path, like what you're doing, where you're just like, yeah, let me just. Let's just goes. try it. Well, and I think there's even space for that in science too, especially because mm -hmm. again, going from knowledge to wisdom from before, mm -hmm. you might start with a really well thought out protocol, mm -hmm. but then you might try it one time, look at your results and you just have kind of a gut instinct about what you need to change. Mm -hmm. And so then you just change it and you move on. Yeah. And it becomes easier to be more adaptive kind of as you go, especially yeah. just the more that you understand what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Then you can be more creative. You can innovate. You can start innovating once you understand. Well, I think we've already been talking about this a little bit, but I would love mm -hmm. to hear more specifically about how your life as a Catholic informs, you know, all of these things that we've just spent the past like 20 minutes talking about how to begin with I mean of course it informs everything in a sense but just because if your faith is really more of an integrated thing as we've been talking about then it's just the way you proceed so in some ways the way my faith probably is um there is that it gives me a why right why I'm doing this um which gives me that wider view of like obviously I'm doing this because it's a vocation, it's, you know, all of that for love of God, for all of that, but it also gives me how. So, you know, you you're, you choose project, not everything that comes your way is something that is congruent with what God is asking you to do, or, you know, where you know what your gifts are, and that's not for me. So, in fact, like, yeah, there's many opportunities that you could say yes or no to, but ultimately, even in the practice of your medicine, um, as a clinician, with whatever research you decide and how you educate, it's it's how you do it. Yeah. And these days, it's all about love. Yeah. Mm. At this stage in my life, <laughs> it's really more of like, yeah, it's in the end, love is what drives all of it. And what does, if I, if I can probe a little further. Um, <laughs> We're going to cry, Catherine. That's why I left it that such. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. I think crying is good. Well, I mean, I think I would like to know what does you say, you said, you know, it's all about love. What yeah. does that look like? You know, what does that look like for when you're meeting a patient in the clinic? Mm, what okay. does that look like? Yeah. Um, love, love means actually just meeting them where they're at, right? One being kind, being courteous. Um, I think with every patient, they come 
especially in Hopkins, they tend to come because they're either severe or factory or, you know, there's something off that. that's why they're coming to a specialty center. And so one is really just spending, even giving them your focus. Because even practicing medicine is very tough these days. You know, you have to keep to a time, you have to document all your notes. It kills your time. It's burning people out, right? It's a hard. So even just being able to listen to the patient and in order to be able to do that, sometimes it means that the day before, I already looked at all their charts, spent already several hours going over what they had, what testing has been done, so that I can actually understand what they have rather than give them a half-ass visit and like be like, well, I don't know, I'll do some tests and we'll figure it out. No, and also just really understanding what they need because after I led the... That's one of the projects we're thinking about, like communication, even um, between patient and physician, where our goals of care might not be the same. Because if you ask me, I'm very focused on, let's say, how, what treatment do we need to give you? And because once I've made a diagnosis, how do we treat you? But then the end part of being patient-centered is also asking at the end, I'll always ask, like, do you have any other questions? Is there anything that I could, that we haven't addressed? Or is there anything you want to talk about? Something like that. It's just practical. So it might mean... Yeah, but it's always like trying to be, yeah, focused on their needs, not mine. Because I would love to cut that visit short if I could and be efficient, <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> Sometimes it's not the appropriate thing to do. No, and I think, I feel like I've been seeing and hearing a lot more about that problem in medicine recently. I'm not super familiar with this concept, but I know like integrative medicine. Oh yeah. Integrative mm -hmm. healthcare is yes. kind of becoming it's a big buzzword right now. Is yeah. that something that you try to practice kind of in your own way yeah. as a physician? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely something that should be incorporated more. It's more of like um in a sense like not just traditional, I mean like uh, like traditional medicine as we know it but integrating other aspects like, oh yeah, if um, holistic, it's sort of thinking of them as a holistic care. Absolutely. That though, you can, I think it can't, there's also a way of veering towards completely where everyone's just like, no, I only want holistic care, which means I will eat healthy. I'm not going to take any medications and I'm going to do acupuncture and this cancer will go away, you know? So you can get those mm -hmm. both sides um, and you have those arguments with patients but but in the end um so I mean but where I stand is I still believe in the value of medications if they are of use in that disease right and ultimately God has given us these medications science has brought these about like discovery has allowed all of these things and the Lord is using that for our good right so because you'll have the patient for like I know my faith will heal me but sometimes the Lord wants to heal you in using the science that we have and the medications that we have. So it's a push and pull. Yeah, I literally had, I have had, in fact, some of my more challenging discussions are with people of faith, you know, where I remembered one patient where she was like, I don't, God will heal me. Um, not anymore, but this per person literally collapsed on the floor, had a sudden um, cardiac arrest already from this this entity we were treating right and then after we treated it she was like no I should get off everything already and the Lord will heal me I'm like I understand she goes I feel oppression she was saying when I think of the medication you're giving me 
And I don't know, I'm not the one discerning, right? So it could be that she really is feeling oppression and that's God's sign. So I remember telling it to her, I was like, you know what? Then, you know what? Let's ask the Lord for a sign. <laughs> like that with this next blood work, I will know, we will know which way. Like if your disease is really active or you're cured, because it might not. And true enough for the first time, her lab really showed it. But we had had that conversation. And true enough, even the Lord was merciful to me that he showed us the right way. Because you don't want to impose on people. And also, I don't know if sometimes you know, you're doing that authoritarian voice, but that's not what the Lord is asking for in this situation. So I don't know. But yeah, it's interesting. We constantly have to listen to the Lord. Yeah. yeah. Just as a side point, did she have like a cardiomyopathy or was it something she else? Had, Do you remember? She had myocarditis as a result of this one thing. And then it was affecting the conduction system. Um, mm. And she was refusing to take this medication that we knew would treat her active disease because she had no other manifestations elsewhere. Everything had come down except this. But then there is a likelihood that it will come back. This disease, it doesn't just go away. Yeah, that just, it piques my interest as someone who studies a cardiac ion channel and I study. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I study cardio. So it was like, oh, she went, not like I'm excited she went into cardiac arrest, <laughs> but it was like, oh, she went into cardiac arrest. I wonder what was going on. But yes, on. it was probably mediated by an ion channel with conduction. With her conduction systems, yes. Yeah. Love Interesting. It. Okay. I'm glad that she got the care that she needed. I just always get I get excited about anything related to cardiac arrest because I'm like, I kind of know something <laughs> about that. I love it. Yeah, exactly. But see, again, applied science. That's what we're here for. Yep, exactly. And have you ever dealt with like, a conflict between being Catholic and being a physician? Have you, have these two worlds ever kind of butt up against each other in um, your practice you or in, in your work? world right now? No, I'm just yeah. kidding. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a bit of a leading question, but. Yes. Do you live in the current world we live in? Yes. No, no, it's interesting. I mean, that I think gets uh, not as up, but you know, the whole conflict of science and faith. There's, it's annoying to me, this question, right? Because there really is no conflict between science and faith if you really understood it correctly, right? But then it's it's kind of like, you know, faith and reason. There are two wings on which to contemplate the truth, right? But in the same way, so I don't think it's the conflict of being Catholic and practicing medicine. So yeah, But it is, what is happening though is the way society thinks you should practice medicine, and so that's that's mandated by laws and ideologies and ways of thinking over time. And that can change, right? And so we're seeing here now, like, okay, suddenly now there's always a shift in the abortion laws, gender identities, right? Um, euthanasia. And that's where the conflict then sort of comes in when you're being like what the law says should be done or how society thinks that medicine should be practiced is um, what comes into direct conflict with how you you do it so at least for me I know that you know I, I believe that every um, life is a gift right that suffering has immense value um, and it's redemptive and also death is not the end and so 
it leads leads you to live in a particular way. The problem is that that's not how everyone feels, nor has the same value. And that's even in greater conflict when the patient themselves doesn't believe that, right? And then so that's where I feel a little bit of attention because it's almost like, well, sure, you're Catholic, but they're not, right? And nor do they believe in this kind of view. And so you're basically having them make choices about their own body and their own health on the basis of what you believe, but that doesn't make sense. So so yeah, there's that can come into conflict sometimes. Hopefully not too much. Hopefully not too much. <laughs> exactly what it is. It's there. I imagine with what you focus on, some of the hotter issues you probably don't come across as frequently. There's a reason why I chose this field. Right. It's <laughs> like, did I want to go into the gyne? No. But at the same time, no, it doesn't mean you're um you're free from that. So let's say for us, like because the, the medications we use, for example, are very strong. They suppress your immune system and they can be teratogenic or they can cause birth defects. Then you come into the space of like, well, while they're on this, they have to be on, you know, contraception and things like that, or they can't get pregnant. And then also we've had patients who actually have who get pregnant on it despite you know and then they'll call you and they want um they want an abortion because then they're like well i don't want the child with birth defects things like that so then it really has it's really one of those where i was like lord spare me spare me but it it has happened you know where you're like yeah and then you don't I pray you, know. you may not be put to the test yeah i i, I agree i pray for that but also, it has happened where I have had to say that, you know, where a patient actually calls and she's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I'm pregnant and I um, I can't, but she goes, I don't want this baby. Um, I don't want it if it's going to have a birth defect. And, but ultimately also part of me is like, well, we don't know that the chances are that it's going to have, you know, it's not a hundred percent that you will, right? But at the same time, mm-hmm. I personally believe, like, I, I can't in good conscience, recommend an abortion. And this was like years ago. And she herself also was conflicted, right? And then I just really prayed and we we let it be. And then she messaged me a week later. She naturally miscarried. Mm. Which is also what does happen when you have, when, you know, it's, um, there's mutation. Yeah, that's something I was thinking about too, was probably the viability was... No, yeah, I know. But had it gone through, right? Because part of you was like, oh my gosh. And then, you know, me, I would be ready to accept a malformed child, right? But can someone of a low socioeconomic status, difficult, you know, already a difficult life and could and does not believe in that, doesn't share that same belief where abortion is like a right to them. So, yeah, it's real world issues. The Lord shows you where you're supposed to go. Like, I mean, I could not fight the battles as an OBGYN, you know, or like, but at the same time, the space where you're in, you feel great, immense comfort doing what you do. So yeah, he'll call you to the right place. Mm -hmm. I don't have a whole lot left for you. I think we're almost done. I guess staying in the topic of faith in your work, what do you think is a major gift that your faith brings to your work? And then kind of the flip side of that, how does your work, you know, impact your spiritual life as well? 
So there's kind nice of two question. questions there. Yeah, and thank you. And actually, yeah, we can nice end to everything. But basically, I would say um, what is the one major gift my faith brings to my work is the gift of sight, where not really essentially the gift of sight, but really the grace to be able to see clearly. I tend, I I find that I've always prayed for like for to find truth. That's like a recurring theme, right? To find truth, right? Obviously, we know we have found truth. But at the same time, like find truth in your work. That's the reason for discovery, right? To find truth. And then also, but not just finding truth, it's to be able to see God in all things and to see as he sees. So I think that's what my faith brings to my work. And that allows me to be able to see the whole thing with all its mess in a particular way and gives you sort of an eternal perspective. So you really understand the duty that you're doing, like why you're doing things. So it's just being able to see things in that whole framework. But at the same time, if I had to say, like, what does my work give me? It's also, it allows me to see better, right? Like, again, faith, when it's not applied, you're all head knowledge. And you're like, oh, it's great, right? But then actually, you have to be walking on the human plane. And it's like, so it basically allows me to have a better, wider perspective because of all the people I come into contact with, like really living out that, you know, all the suffering and the blind and the lame all of that but it really does make my heart bigger it helps me understand people who do not share my faith right but at the same time helps you understand all of god's children and so yeah i think for me again it's the gift of sight both ways and if the gift of faith gives me an eternal perspective working with people gives me the gift of being able to see like ah the kingdom of god is here and it's great <laughs> before I tear up anymore but yes no. <laughs> that's so beautiful yeah yeah it makes me think about father Harrison air he has a podcast called the clerically speaking podcast and I'm a big big fan of them they're two like just really wonderful paternal priests um, yeah. but one of his big things is that living living our faith means that we live more in reality Oh yeah. Oh, and that oh we, my gosh. I love that. See, we see things the way they really are. Exactly. And that's really what I heard and what you said. Yeah, no, for sure. It's the practical. It's grounded. God is here. You know, you can't live up in your, your head in the clouds and like just reading the Bible. You actually have to be in practice and you see he's working all the time. Um, and he's using you to do that. Anyway, that's all I have for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much, Maima, for coming here today. For those of you listening at home, if you can, you can rate and review us on your podcasting platform of choice. You're all smart people. I take it that you know how to do that at this point. You can email us at femininegenus at gmail.com. And you can find us on all your social media platforms. I'll have links to all that stuff down below and so um remember jp2 called you a genius and we'll see you next time <laughs>